So if you have your copy of Scripture with you, turn to Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Uh, Pastor Dale already read it for you, but let's read it again. It says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast to the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we come before you again this morning and we ask for light, light to understand your word, heat that would move and stir our affections to deeper love and devotion to you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would grant light and heat to us this morning. We also pray, Lord, for those who may be here who do not know you, We pray that they would come to a saving knowledge of Christ, that they would bow their knee to the greatest leader of all, the Lord Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Pastoral search committees abound today, often searching somewhat aimlessly for a new pastor. A plethora of Christian books are published on leadership each year, each year, often borrowing what I would typically call worldly wisdom from business world and business leadership. Rarely does one ever ask the question, what does God say about leadership in His church? What has Christ revealed in relationship to what a pastor should look like? What are the characteristics of a leader in Christ's church that both that leader should be aiming for and those who are under that leadership should be looking for in a leader? Well, I'm glad you asked the question. Because that's what we're going to look at this morning in Titus chapter 1 verses 5 through 9. To set a little bit of the context of Titus, it's commonly called one of the pastoral epistles. It's written to an individual, Paul, writing to Titus. And he's writing to instruct Titus on the church and to give him instructions in leading the church, or dare I say, the churches in Crete. Crete was a small island and uh, there was evidently a handful of different cities in this uh, on this island, and it was it was dominated by pagan culture and pagan living. Uh, in fact, uh, it's somewhat humorous uh, what Paul says later on in dropping a stereotype. So, if you don't like stereotypes, you're not going to like what Paul says about Cretans, uh, because Paul says of Cretans later on in. Uh, in Titus, he says in verse 12 that, uh, well, he doesn't say it himself. He quotes somebody else who says, Cretans are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Okay, so not exactly a good, um, you know, kind of uh, advertisement for the, the island of Crete. Uh, so it, it was filled with pagan living. And so Paul is giving instructions. And what's fascinating here is Paul opens up the letter and 
He drops, in a very real sense, the mission that he has as an apostle, and it's really the mission of the church. Okay, And then the next step is he's going to address these are the kinds of leaders that you are to look for in helping fulfill that mission of the church. Now let's see something of the, the mission that Paul drops forth in verse 1 when he identifies himself. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus. And, and notice 4, for the faith of those chosen of God. So that's, that's the first kind of prong on his mission. For the faith of the elect of God, those whom God has chosen, that they would come to saving faith. We might call this evangelism. To reach out to the lost and dying world and for them to be plucked and come to a saving knowledge of Christ. The second part of this mission is also in verse, uh, verse 1. And the knowledge of the truth, which is in according, which is according to godliness. The second prong of this is that people would grow in their knowledge of the truth, and that this would be fleshed out in their lives, living more godly, holy lives before the Lord. And so, this two-pronged kind of mission of evangelism, reaching out to the lost world, so that God's elect would come to saving faith in Jesus, and that the saints would be built up in the knowledge of the truth, and that this would flesh out in their lives in a greater Christian living. And then, as I mentioned, Paul tells Titus that in order to bring about this task or this mission, you need quality men to lead. And so, this leads us to three categories of non-negotiable qualifications for an elder, a leader in Christ's church. Now, you might be internally yawning at this point. (laughs) Okay, this is a message for leadership. I'm not a leader. Uh, but first of all, let me let me let me ask this question. You you may say, well, it's not a big deal. Who's you know what kind of government a church has? What kind of leadership? Would would you say the same thing about the United States of America? Yeah, communist, socialist, monarchy, constitutional republic. No big deal. I'm thinking you probably wouldn't say that, right? Not only that, what you're going to find in these three non-negotiable characteristics. Is these are actually characteristics that every believer in some sense should be aiming after. In fact, one of the things that is so remarkable about these qualifications is how unremarkable they are. <laughs> okay. They're very unremarkable. They're, they're very much, yeah, this is what every Christian is supposed to be doing in, in some sense. Okay, now we'll, we'll get to some of the details of this. And not only that, I'll let you in on a little bit of secret. Us as leaders of Sovereign Grace Chapel, these three kind of categories are the things that we look at in trying to help each of you come along in greater progress in the Christian life. Okay? So the first of these categories is character. Godly, Christ-like character. So let me start out. Verse 5. For this reason... Paul writes, I left you in Crete, you being Titus, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So Paul evidently had been with uh, with Titus and he had left him in Crete for Titus to carry about some business that had been unfinished. Now, you can be a church, a real church, and not have elders. Okay, If you look at the book of Acts, there were certain churches that it says Paul came back around to visit these churches he had planted, and he had appointed elders in those churches. Okay, But it's not going to be a well-ordered church. It's not going to be a healthy church without leadership. And Paul recognizes this, and so he tells Titus, this, this still remains. There's some unfinished business that needs to be done. Namely, you need to appoint elders in every city. Now, a couple things I want to draw to your attention. Uh, first of all, is that these elders are synonymous with 
what we typically call pastors or also as he's going to speak of overseers in the section. In fact, we're going to see he uses elder and overseer interchangeably when we get to verse 7. For the overseer must be above reproach. An overseer is the same as an elder, is the same as a pastor. Okay, All three of those terms are used interchangeably in the New Testament. Uh, there's not an office of overseer, which the older translations say bishop, which mercifully the newer translations don't translate that because when you hear the word bishop, you might be like me and think of a guy who wears a big cone on his head, comes out in a long robe. Uh, but it simply means, the Greek term episkopos means overseer, one who gives oversight. The term elder means one who is mature. The term pastor means shepherd. Okay, And all three of those terms are used interchangeably. Also, something else I want you to take note of is notice the language Paul uses in verse 5 when he says, uh, to set in order what remains and appoint elders, plural, in every city as I directed you. Elders, plural, in every singular city. In other words, there evidently had been a a, a singular church in each of these different cities on the island of Crete and there was a plurality of elders that Titus was to appoint. In other words, that the leadership within Christ's church is to be a plurality of leaders. Okay, uh, It's not a mini-papacy where there is the boss. Okay, uh, There's to be a multitude of shepherds, elders, and overseers. Now, th- there's no specific command that says thou shalt not have uh, you know, less than two elders or something like that, but, but it's clearly the model. It's clearly the precedent. In fact, I do find it interesting you never have to argue uh, uh, for the plurality of deacons in the New Testament. And yet deacons we see are are right alongside of elders, overseers in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. And so there's a plurality. Also, I I would suggest to you that assumes that with the plurality there's also a parity amongst the elders. Now parity, I don't mean parity in the sense of like a, you know, like an ironic kind of joke thing. Parity, P-A-R-I-T-Y. Okay, in other words there's equality amongst the elders. Um, and, and again, this is something that is often missed and, 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 and not understood in church government structures that, that, that we've often, you know, we've, we've, we often become so atomized in our approach to ministry. You know, you have the discipleship pastor over here, you have the pastor of evangelism, you have the pastor of the parking lot over here. It, it just keeps going, right? You know, or, you know, sometimes people say, well, are you the senior pastor? You know, and I usually just... Yeah, I usually don't get into a fight over it, you know. But or are you the head pastor? Well, you know, actually, Jesus is the head pastor. Um, so, uh, amongst the elders here at Sovereign Grace, we, we believe that there is parity. Okay, now there may be a division of labor. Maybe one elder carries on more responsibility in a certain area. Another elder carries on more responsibility. But 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 we're all equal amongst one another. To set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city. And notice, the first non-negotiable characteristic is character. Notice the summary kind of characteristic. And then he's going to kind of give a bunch of uh, subcategory characteristics in verse 6. Namely, if any man is above reproach. This is kind of the broad general characteristic of an elder, an overseer, a pastor, is to be somebody who is above reproach. Now obviously Paul doesn't mean by this they have to be they have to have arrived at glorification prior to Jesus' return. Um, he's not saying a pastor is to be without sin, but, but the idea is, is that those in leadership should be of such caliber that uh, there, there's no major accusations that could stick against them. A, a good example of this is when you turn to the Old Testament and see in the book of Daniel. Remember when uh, those who opposed Daniel, they wanted to try to dig up some dirt on Daniel. 
Okay, there's a, you know the the political game isn't isn't something that's recent. You know this is this is an ancient tradition of trying to dig up dirt on a politician. So they tried to dig up dirt on Daniel, and they couldn't find any dirt. You remember that? In, in fact, it says in Daniel chapter six, verse four and five. Then the commissioners and the satraps were trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption, inasmuch as he was faithful. No negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, "We will not find any ground of accusation against Daniel unless we." find it against him in regard to the law of his God. And that's when they sought to have a law passed by Darius that, that nobody was allowed to pray to anybody other than Darius. And so that's a good example of above reproach. They, they, you know, they had all their minions trying to you know, find dirt on Daniel. Did he take a bribe here? Did he do something illegal? Did he, is there some, some you know, blemish upon his character? And they say, well, can't find anything. And so this is the idea that an elder is to be above reproach. Character matters in Christ. And, and again, this is, this is very counterculture. Remember Paul's descriptions of the Cretans? They're, they're, they're gluttons, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, liars. Paul says if, if you're going to lead this mission... In Christ's church, for the faith of God's elect and for the, the knowledge of the truth that is according to godliness, it must be led by people who live lives that are utterly distinct from the world around them. Not in some kind of weird way, but in a way in which their character is remarkably different. But then notice under this broad general category, he says the husband in verse 6 of one wife. Now, one obvious reality to this is that Paul limits leadership to men. Okay, now I know that is not going to win me the presidency of the United States of America, but I'm bound by the scriptures. The scriptures are very clear on the topic. In fact, if you were just to go two books to the left in 1 Timothy chapter uh, 2 verses 12 and 13 He says 1 Timothy we'll start in verse 2 uh, 1 Timothy 2:11 a, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And the reasons Paul gives, he goes back to creation and fall. Verse 13, For it was Adam who was created first, and then Eve. In other words, the order of creation tells you something of the design of creation. God designed men to be leaders in his church and in, his, and in the family. And then the second reason he gives is found in verse 14. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into the transgression. In other words, when you look at the fall of man, it was the woman who's taking the leadership role and engaging with Satan. And the man, Adam, is passively standing by as his wife is drawn into sin and temptation. And so while men and women are equal in dignity, both made in the image of God, both saved in the same way, both have various spiritual gifts and, and opportunities for ministry, and, 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 but nonetheless, God reserves leadership within His church to be men. The husband of one wife, not the wife of one husband. But that doesn't answer the question. Back to Titus. What does it mean, the husband of one wife? Well, there's a multitude of different uh, interpretations of this. First, first would be uh, that this excludes polygamy. Okay, So he has to be the husband of one wife, not the husband of two wives. Well, the difficulty with this interpretation is that, that within the culture of Crete, uh, polygamy was not something that was an issue. It would be like someone writing to a church in Youngstown and say, saying that a, a pastor 
within your church should not be a cannibal. Well, I hope the pastor's not a cannibal, but it's really not an issue in Youngstown eating other human beings, okay? Uh, so it's kind of an odd qualification that really, and not only that, well, the next one would be widows, okay? So, uh, and this would be similar to the category of, of anybody who had ever been divorced. So uh, the idea here was one life, one wife, and that's it. Okay, and if you have any more, then you would be disqualified here. But again, it's there's nothing sinful about a widow remarrying, um, and and not every instance of divorce was the person who has has been divorced has been in sin, um, and, and so again, this is a moral qualification. So it seems strange that it would immediately exclude anybody who had been widowed or divorced. Uh, some people think it excludes single men. Men who are not married. So you have to have at least one wife. Um, but that, again, would seem to be odd because the Apostle Paul himself doesn't seem to be married as he writes the various letters in the New Testament. Uh, in fact, he says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, this is part of his freedom. He had the freedom to get married and freedom not to get married. Um, and so what does it mean? Well, it seems to me the best understanding of husband of one wife is that this is a man who is fully devoted to his wife. Okay? He's a one-woman man, and the assumption is, is that one woman is his wife. Okay? He's married to her. Okay? Then everybody knows that he is devoted to his wife. Okay? And so this, this would exclude a person being a womanizer, an adulterer, flirtatious. Uh, but this is a person who is devoted to the woman who he has vowed before God to be committed to. And so this also obviously includes the idea of sexual purity and devotion to his wife. Even, dare I would say, emotional purity and devotion to his wife where he is devoted to her. Allowing a man into leadership who's less than devoted to his wife is like having a man with a history of 12 DUIs drive a bus that your children are on. I mean, you're just asking for a wreck, a horrible wreck. And so this is a this is a qualification with a pattern of devotedness to one's wife. And again, you know, again, what I said was what, what's remarkable about these qualifications is how unremarkable. It's not like, okay, the, 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 the leaders, they're to be devoted to their wives, but, you know, the rest of the congregation, you know, boys will be boys. No. Like, this is something that all Husbands are to be aiming after exclusive devotion to their spouses, to their wives, that they have eyes for no other. Next qualification in verse 6, having children who believe not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. This, this verse is also a source of controversy in multiple interpretations. Um, the, basically, the, the two different interpretations is that children who believe in the sense that they're born-again believers um, or children who believe in the sense children who are faithful. Uh, I, I, I tend towards the interpretation that he's talking about children who are faithful. Okay, And let me give you some reasons why I think that. Um, Paul most commonly uses this word translated believe as faithful throughout the pastoral epistles. And it's used especially in regard to those faithful sayings throughout the pastoral epistles. This is a faithful saying or this is a trustworthy saying like for instance 1 Timothy 5 1 15 where it says this is a trustworthy saying Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am chief um, and so it's most often used in the sense of faithful secondly the parallel 
passage in Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, doesn't say children who believe, but uses a little bit different different language in 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5, when it says he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? So the parallel passage doesn't say children who believe, but children who are under control. Okay? And then not only that, I think children who believe is explained in the next phrase in Titus chapter 1 and verse 6 when it says, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. In other words, the idea is that they're, they're faithful to their parents. They're, they're in general submissive. Now, again, obviously it doesn't mean that the, the children of pastors are, are you know, never disobey. Um, every pastor would be disqualified and if that were the case. But, but the idea here, uh, and then one more, one more reason why, is that the practical difficulties. Um, if you say, well, children who believe in the sense that the pastor has to have children who are regenerate, born again, believing children... Um, there's all kinds of practical difficulties. In other words, um, if a elder has three children under the age of three, I'm pretty sure they're not believers. Okay, so should he step down because his children aren't believers? Okay, at what point? At what age do they need to be a genuine believer? And then on top of that, our ability to discern the profession of faith of a child is, is very challenging. Okay? So then, but then also, okay, well, if you say children who believe they have to profess faith while they're in the home, well, what if they're 35 years old and they abandon the faith? Now they're out from underneath the authority of that, uh, of that home, and, but, but they're still the pastor's son or daughter and they abandon the faith. Do that, does that pastor need to step down? It, it would seem odd. So then, but obviously this does mean something, and I think gathered from the parallel that the pastor must be one who manages his own household well, for how can he manage the household of God if he can't manage his own family? The, the, the point is, is that, that the, the, the elder, the proving ground for his leading in the big family is how well is he leading in the little family? How is he leading his children, his family to the Lord? How is he governing in that situation? Because that becomes a proving ground for how he will lead within the big family of the church. And so again, it's worth us pausing because these are characteristics for every Christian. Not only are men to be devoted to their wives, but men are to be leading their families well. To be caring for their little flock that's been entrusted to them. To be uh, concerned about the eternal well-being of their children. To be raising them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so, husbands, fathers, how are you doing in this area? It is a character issue of how well you are leading your family. Are you neglecting the spiritual well-being of your children? You think of, tragically in this world, parents who neglect feeding their children, neglect being around to protect their children, leave their children, young children at home unattended. I mean, there's laws against that, right? Rightfully so. Tragically, we've seen many a child come into foster care because of parents neglecting their children. Well, for a father to say, well, I, I put bread on the table. For a Christian father, that's not enough. There's other kind of bread that you need to be disseminating to your family. 
feeding them the Word of God, raising them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Verse 7, For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. This should put a lump in every pastor's throat. Above reproach as God's steward. A steward is someone who has been entrusted with something. Only on a couple occasions have has anybody asked me to house sit for them. <laughs> but when you're house sitting, you're you're a steward, right? You know that's that's not your house. You're not there to trash it. You're trying to make sure you don't break anything because that family they're coming back. Those people they're coming back, and there's an accounting. You have to explain. Oh, I broke the table over here. You know, there's a hole in the wall over here. No, you're a steward. Well, in a similar way, overseers of Christ's church, they are stewards. They have been handed and trusted the precious souls that have been bought by the blood of Jesus to care for, to look after, to warn off the bad guys, to stay away from them. It's a serious task. And then he moves on to... Another qualification in verse 7, not self-willed. The person who would be self-willed would be a person who would have a lust for power, control. Somebody who likes to be in charge. People who like to be in charge, putting them in charge is always a big mistake. First Peter chapter five verse three, when he's addressing the shepherds, the elders there, he says, "Not as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock." Uh, the, the shepherds, the pastors, the overseers, the elders—they're not to be self-willed. It has to be my way or the highway. They're not to be micromanaging. They're not to be lovers of control but rather examples. Then he says, not quick-tempered. This is the idea of self-mastery over, over anger. When, when shepherding people, you know, trying to care for people and help people in their sin, you know, you begin to realize sometimes sheep can bite, okay? And you're not allowed to bite back. And, and, and so you, you have to be Make sure that, that you have control over your temper. Don't respond without control. And then not addicted to wine. Self-mastery over pleasures. An elder must not be one who frequents the bottle. One who is going to be involved in making decisions in Christ's church has to be sober-minded. It shouldn't be one who's known to frequent their Christian liberties a little bit too much with the bottle. Shouldn't be, a pastor shouldn't be one known who's tossed a few too many back at the church picnic. Not addicted to wine. But then also not pugnacious. Uh, again, when you think of elders as a team of men having to make decisions, uh, that, that one who's pugnacious is one who's a fighter, one who's quick to throw down at every disagreement. Uh, one, one, the opposite would be one who's a peacemaker, one who can resolve conflicts, one who can solve problems, but the person who's pugnacious and wants to fight over every issue, uh, it's, it's not going to be helpful. It's not going to be helpful to that team of leadership. And, and this, this is important because uh, the next characteristic we're going to talk about is that this must be a man of convictions. He has to have beliefs that are cemented. And, and so there are times in which those in leadership do have to fight for good things. They do have to 
as Jude says, to contend earnestly for the faith, but they can't do it in a contentious way. They may sometimes have to argue the truths of the Christian faith, but to not do it in an argumentative kind of way. Living in the city of Youngstown, there's a lot of attack dogs that neighbor me. Sometimes I'll be taking the children on a bike ride and you just get close to certain houses. You know, the slightest sound. And, you know, you feel like you're going to be eaten by a dog. And I don't ride the bike that fast. And we have younger children. You're just hoping and praying that that dog is on a leash uh, and, or doesn't get loose from that leash because... If he does, you're at the, at the mercy of that attack dog. Well, sometimes Christians, especially those with firm convictions, which it's good to have firm doctrinal convictions, can be like attack dogs. Pugnacious. The slightest smell of air. Don't ask questions. Don't try to understand another's position. Just... Friends, being pugnacious has no position in leadership, but, but also within the Christian faith. Next, he says, not fond of sordid gain. Not fond of sordid gain. This is at the end of verse 7. It really doesn't help us a lot, right? I really like the older translation. One who doesn't love filthy lucre. That just rolls off the tongue. Filthy lucre. The idea here is one who loves money. One who, not just one who has a lot of possessions, but one who's possessed by his possessions. One who, not one who has possessions, but one whose possessions has him. Uh, this is one who loves money, which, uh, of course, you can see here, as, as often those in leadership are entrusted with funds and resources that God's people have entrusted to them to be used for God's purposes. And so, if you put into position one who loves money, you're just asking for a disaster. This would be like, you know, uh, allowing someone who's a, a chain smoker to. Uh, Drive a truck that's carrying a tank of gasoline. It's just going to explode at some point. And sadly and tragically, you hear of churches that wind up finding out that somebody in leadership was siphoning money. It's terrible. Of course, this is a, a hallmark characteristic of prosperity preachers, right? They, they, they not only do it, they, they have a whole theology that is branded after fleecing Christ's sheep. But this ought not to be the case in Christ's church. Verse 8, but hospitable. This is one who loves strangers. That, that those in leadership have to, uh, to have open hearts to those who are outsiders. Those who aren't uh, part of the, the familiar. And John Stott reminds us there were no hotels comparable to those we are familiar with. Roadside inns were scarce, dirty, unsafe, and unsavory. So Christian travelers, especially itinerant Christian preachers, needed to be accommodated so often by those in leadership, pastors and their wives. An open home is certainly a sign of an open heart. And again, I have to pause and say these are characteristics not only to be of those in leadership, but for all of God's people. Asking yourself, have, have you built up walls around your heart and life where you're just comfortable with those who you already know and us four no more, shut the door? <laughs> or do you have an open hand towards those who you don't know? 
loving what is good. Uh, the one who is lover of good. And then, then he, he lists these one who's... Uh, this is clearly some who's, who's passionate about doing good. Sensible. This is one who's sober, moderate, self-controlled. And this is very similar to, to the last one here mentioned. One who is self-controlled. Uh, he, he finishes these moral qualifications with, with, with this idea of, of self-control, self-mastery. This is such an important part of the Christian life. And again, this is the opposite of one who's addicted to wine or one who's, who, who's, who's not controlled and being devoted to his wife. That, that, that this is one who has mastery over his own appetites. I remember hearing a teaching once where the person said that next to love in the Christian life, the second most important virtue is self-control. Initially I thought, well that's interesting. I don't know if I agree with that. But the more I thought about it, I thought, well that kind of makes sense. Because love without self-control is just sloppy agape. Self-control without love, well, that's just military. That's not necessarily Christian. But you put the two together. One who loves God, loves people, loves what's good, but has self-discipline, self-control for those avenues of love to run down and run through with some control and intentionality. Well, there's somebody who can go far in the Christian life. He mentions just... This is the idea of righteous, fair in dealings with others, devout, a man who's committed to the Lord, committed to, to the work of serving others. You see, all these, again, these are character qualifications that are Christ-like qualifications here. The second, not only character, but conviction. Notice verse 9. Holding fast to the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. Holding fast. This is a present participle here. One holding tight to continuing to hold tight with a grip. A grip upon what? A grip upon his own opinions, his own ideas. No. Holding fast to the faithful word. The pistulagu. This is a word that's often used throughout the pastoral epistles. Remember I mentioned those faithful sayings throughout the pastoral epistles? Well, all those faithful sayings are surrounded by fundamental doctrinal truth that's within the word of God. I mentioned the, the one in 115. Here is a faithful saying, a faithful word. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am chief. He needs to be holding on to that truth. 1 Timothy 3.1 Here is a trustworthy statement. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, is a fine work he desires to do. 1 Timothy 4.9 and 10. 2 Timothy 3.11-13 The point here is that those who are in leadership in Christ's church are to be people of convictions. They hold fast to the Word of God. They hold fast to those faithful, those, those truths that have been handed down to us oftentimes with bloody hands, bodies that have been singed by smoke, by, by fire and smell like smoke because those that have gone before us have given their lives for them. Someone has said that beliefs are things that a person holds but convictions are those things that hold the person. Beliefs are something that a person holds, but convictions are those that hold the person. That's what's encapsulated with this idea of holding fast. It's not somebody who merely has a belief in the Trinity. No, this is someone who has, has a conviction. This is what God has revealed about Himself in the Scripture. I hold fast to it. He's holding fast to the faithful word. And then notice the end of verse 9, which is in accordance with the teaching. With what teaching? With the teaching of the apostles. That those who are in leadership in Christ's church are to be the resident experts in the Bible. 
The resident experts in the Bible. They're the, the, the men who are who devour the book and who are devoured by the book. So many a church has abandoned the mission of the church because they've abandoned the truth of God's Word. It was the United Methodist denomination back in the 1920s that said, well, we we can't be concerned about doctrinal matters. We just need to be concerned about reaching the lost. Just missions and evangelism. Well, sadly... So many of the churches within that denomination winded up losing the gospel. If if you're going to reach people with the gospel, you need to make sure you protect the gospel. And, and, And again, this goes back to, this is so critical for leadership in Christ's church because remember, what is that mission that Paul laid out? Part of his mission as an apostle that he drops in verse 1 of Titus is that it's for the faith of God's elect for evangelism and also for the knowledge of the truth which is, an according, which is according to godliness. And so if the leadership isn't holding fast to the faithful Word, being nourished upon the Word of God and holding fast to those biblical convictions, then how are they going to impart those to those under their leadership? So again, this is, this is how we want to bring everybody else along as well. You know, there may be some of you who have good character, quality character, but maybe there's some holes here and there. You, you haven't sat under good teaching and we want to help feed you the Word of God so we can fill out those holes and you can become more mature. Maybe some of you have, you know, heads that are swelling with doctrine, you know. But your character uh, doesn't have the heart and the neck size to hold your head up. Okay? And, and, and so we want to help fill out that character. And so it's also helpful for us to understand ourselves, to be self aware in these areas. Am I, am I lacking in character? Maybe, maybe you know, I, I can cross all my theological T's in my doctrinal eyes, but mm, not leading my family well. Not, not living a life of integrity as I ought to. Or maybe it's the other. You know, I, I struggle to understand the Bible and, and I know I need to understand God's Word better. Well, Third, C, not only character, not only conviction, but third, competency. The end of verse 9 here, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. So that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine. This is the positive element that the elder overseer must be able to do. To exhort. This is the idea of coming alongside, instructing others in sound doctrine, in healthy doctrine. The the words of God that are going to nourish the soul. That those in leadership have to be equipped to be able to do this. Now, now this word exhort, we we read it in... it's very interesting because it's a very elastic word. It can carry the idea of public speaking, but also can carry the idea of one-to-one, one-to-twos, one-to-threes uh, communication. But the idea here is the ability to be able to take God's Word and impart it to others, to be able to take God's Word and skillfully help others to understand it. And obviously there's always going to be varying degrees of giftedness when it comes to exhorting in sound doctrine. But there has to be some measure of giftedness, some measure of skill. Because this is one of the main jobs of those in leadership. I mean, if you speak of a baker who can't bake, (laughs) that ain't a good baker. Okay? I mean, that's kind of what he does, right? 
uh, you know, those who are elders, overseers, that, that's, that's, part of what, that's part of how pastor shepherds feed, feed the flock. And again, this comes in the public ministry of the Word, but also private, one-to-ones, one-to-twos, Bible studies, phone conversations. And again, think of the, if, if, if this mission is for the faith of God's elect, <clears throat> and for the knowledge of the truth according to godliness, if, if the truth is going to be imparted either to the lost and dying world or to Christ's sheep, those in leadership have to be able to dispense it. But then the second prong here, under this third characteristic of competency, communication competency, if you want another C, is to refute those who contradict. Now, this, this is the one that is bad for your health. Okay? This is the one that gets you in trouble, right? You know, it's one thing to exhort in sound doctrine to, to teach those healthy truths of the Christian faith, but periodically to say, that's a wolf over there. That dude's bad for your soul. Stay away from him. This is a lie. This is false teaching over here. And this is why, because God's Word says this. That's what it means to refute those who contradict. It's that negative element that, 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 that has to refute those lies that are contrary to God's Word. And, and we have wonderful models of this in Scripture, you know? I mean, you look at the Apostle Paul, you read the book of Galatians, and, and, and you know, and, and he had this loving relationship with the Galatians that, that, you know, he says of them that at one point they would have plucked out their eyes and given them to the Apostle Paul. But this love also motivated him to write this stern letter to them and say, some of you are abandoning the gospel. And I want to tell you, if anybody comes to you preaching another gospel, he says, let them be accursed. This is the idea of let them be damned. In the modern vernacular, to hell with them. They are teaching damnable doctrines that will send people to hell. It's a perversion of the gospel of Christ. The same sentiment is in Acts chapter 20 when Paul is just shedding tears over the Ephesian elders and he says, day and night for three years I warned you that savage wolves are going to come within the midst of you and they're going to draw away disciples after themselves. Be on guard, shepherds. Man up and warn those wolves to get out. And so there's a negative element here. Now I understand that if, if, you know, if a shepherd's whole life is devoted to this negative element, you know, then it's not healthy, right? But, but there's a beautiful balance that the Scripture has. Not only with Paul, as we see it with the other apostles, with Christ Himself. Christ is this amazing teacher of truth with, with a, a gentle and lowly spirit that even children flock to Him, right? I mean, the, the disciples are trying to shoo away these kids from Jesus, right? But yet, when it came to those Pharisees, man, He was throwing down. He was in the octagon. And He was going to go toe-to-toe and it was no hold barred. He called him out. I mean, just skate. I mean, Matthew 23, just scathing indictment. You travel over land and sea to make one convert, and when you do, you make him twice the son of hell as yourself. I mean, that's strong language. Why? Because Jesus cared for people, He knew that the lies and false teaching of the Pharisees were dragging people to hell with them. And he was willing to be crucified over it. July 21st, 1861. It's the first battle of Bull Run. Confederate lines began to crumble under heavy Union assault and General Thomas Jackson Brigade provided crucial reinforcements to the South. Jackson even... 
as his his men were 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 losing the battle, but it was so important for them to stand firm. He rode on his horse right to the front lines, and he put his hand up. And legend has it that a bullet went right through his hand, and he didn't flinch. And an onlooker, one of his fellow soldiers, says, "Look, look! Jackson stands like a stone wall." Hence the name. Stonewall Jackson. Leaders in Christ's church need to go out to the front lines, often take bullets, but to stand firm in their leadership. Now you may ask yourself, well, how? Okay, I understand how character, conviction relate to me, but this competency. I'm not a preacher. But again, can you explain the gospel to your neighbor? Can you lead your family in the scriptures? Can you explain the gospel to a coworker? These are some basic Christian can you if somebody called you on the phone and said they're another believer, I'm struggling with this sin. Can you give them biblical help? We all have to have some measure of competency to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Maybe not in the position of leadership, but again, this is part of our job and wanting to help you guys to be more competent in communicating God's Word. Well, where is the perfect pastor? Where is the perfect overseer? The one of perfect integrity and character, not one who is self-willed, not one who is pugnacious, one who is devout, righteous. Where is the one who is the perfect dispenser of truth, who has the perfect balance of exhorting in sound doctrine and refuting those who contradict Where is the perfect pastor of purest theological convictions? Well, he's in this room. Not in the way you think of. (laughs) The Lord Jesus dwells amongst His people in a spiritual way. As the one who promised His own disciples, "Make make disciples of all the nations, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He said of himself in John chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd, the good pastor, lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not the shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and he is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good pastor. I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Friends, every under-shepherd in Christ's church has to look to the good shepherd, the perfect shepherd. But also every individual sheep has to look to that same shepherd. Friend, you may be sitting here this morning thinking, why on earth did I come? What does this have to do with me? Well, let me ask you, are you following the good pastor, Jesus the perfect pastor? Is He your shepherd? Have you embraced what He has done on your behalf in laying down His life for His sheep? Have you heard His voice as He has called you out of sin and darkness to follow after Him? Friend, if you've not yet begun to follow the good pastor Jesus, start following Him today. And when you do that, He'll tell you, You need to be part of His people and part of His people will be placing yourself under not-so-perfect pastors 
But they'll point you to the good pastor, the Lord Jesus. Go to Him. Second, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 25 says, For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank You and praise You for all that You are. Lord, you, You've not left us in the darkness on how Your church is to be ordered. While there may be different flavors and strands and all that, we can go back to the authoritative, inerrant, sufficient Word of the living God to find out what church leaders are to look like. There may be many different areas where you have not spoken and there's a measure of liberty, but not in this one, Lord. You've been crystal clear. We just need to be obedient to you. And I pray for everyone here, Lord, that all of us might be aiming to grow in our character and convictions and competencies but also that those who are in leadership here, that we, we would maintain the utmost integrity in meeting these character qualifications and that you would be glorified in that. And I pray this for many years to come, that Sovereign Grace Chapel would be marked as a healthy church because its shepherds are leading the people well. In Jesus' name. Amen.